0: We invest 90% of our lives in family and Pernasa, and it's just doing the minimal thing to make sure that our family sits around the Seder table together after we're not around also, and that money shouldn't get in the way.
1: I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Today we're going to talk about a topic that a lot of people actively avoid thinking about, but which frankly must be addressed forthrightly to avoid arguments, machloket, in our families after we're gone. I'm speaking about the allocation of property after we've passed away. And while many of us don't want to deal with this question, and while I have no intention of dying, caring about our families requires us to do so and probably sooner rather than later. This Shabbat, the Jewish world will read Parashat Pinchas, which includes the story of the daughters of Tzalavchad, who, being the only descendants of their father, asked Moshe why their uncles should inherit their father's property, rather than them. When Moshe brought their case before God, God responded that they were indeed correct. This story provides the introduction to several short verses that are the source of the Jewish laws of Inheritance. These laws are then explained in much greater detail in the 8th chapter of Masachet Baba Batra. While the initiative of the daughters of Tzalavchad demonstrated that women can inherit property, the Torah laws of inheritance are still quite different from what most parents would want for their children. In fact, a firstborn son receives a double portion. A wife does not inherit her husband. Daughters do not inherit property when there are also sons. While there are, of course, provisions in halakha to take care of the surviving wife and daughters, the simple reality is that the vast majority of people would rather not follow the laws of inheritance as set down in the Torah. And frankly, for good reason. Jewish law has provided a solution, which is a halakhic supplement to the regular legal will. But how does it work? How is this not a violation of Torah law? What is the legal and philosophical justification for ignoring the Torah's requirements that wives and daughters, in most cases, do not inherit property? To answer these and other questions, I spoke with Rabbi Menachem Copperman, the founder and manager of Kadat VeKadin. First, let me remind you to please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join and participate in the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Also go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. Just search for the Orthodox Conundrum, give it between zero and five stars, I hope five, and write a sentence or two. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are available only to subscribers. We're adding new features to Patreon all the time, including, coming up very soon, AMA, Ask Me Anything. You'll also be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, halakhically committed, and honest orthodoxy. So make sure you sign up to Patreon right away. It's just a few bucks a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining our team on Jewish Coffeehouse. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can help you start. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day or, alternatively, record, relax, and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work for you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and sign up for a free 30-minute consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. Rav Menachem Kopperman serves as the Rav of Avatzion in Ramat Chemish. He is the founder and manager of Kadatvik Hadin, which promotes the practice of Torah law, helps with estate planning and drafting halachic wills, and is involved in Dean Torah consulting and litigation. Rav Kopperman was also Rosh Kollel Halacha, Gemara Rebbe, and curriculum coordinator at Yeshivat Lev HaTorah, and has also been a lecturer in the Sharei Mada Umishpat Law School in Hod HaSharon. Rav Menachem Kupperman, thank you for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. It's an honor to have you with me today. It's a really
0: big schutz to be with you, and uh, thanks for this uh, great opportunity.
1: You're involved in preparing halachic wills, and full disclosure, my wife and I worked with you on our own halachic will last year, and I want to make sure that this discussion is as organized as possible so that our listeners will understand why this topic should matter to them. So I'm going to open with a very basic background question. What does Jewish law prescribe? when it comes to distribution of property after a parent dies, assuming there is no halachic will. What's the basic halachic requirement?
0: Well, the halachic default would have a few implications regarding different family issues. Um, We can talk about the spouse, we can talk about the children. And regarding the spouse, so the halachic default would be that the husband would inherit the wife, but the wife would not inherit the husband at all. Back in the day, The wife would receive the sum of the ketubah, which is kind of a life insurance, which would be like a lump sum she would receive, but she wouldn't receive part of the estate. That's number one. Number two is regarding the sons, the firstborn son, assuming there's a firstborn son, would receive a double share. That means if you have, let's say, three sons, um, so the first son would get 50 percent and the other two sons would get 25 percent and so on and so forth. The third issue is uh, regarding the daughters. And if a person has sons and daughters, take me for instance, I have one son and five daughters. The halakha default would be that my son would be the sole heir and my daughters would receive nothing from the estate. Again, the halakha prescribes by default that girls would get something towards their marriage if they're not married, but that's not really a fixed percentage of the estate.
1: Okay. In that case, what does a halachic will do, meaning on a practical level, what does the halachic will accomplish in terms of what the halacha is as the default and what happens after someone assigns a halachic will? Right.
0: So what I like to say is, uh, I like to paraphrase what uh, a lot of people like to say about rabbis. I'm sure you've discussed this in your podcast sometime, (laughs) that uh, every legal will has a halachic way. So uh, my assumption is that... It's a
1: famous phrase.
0: Right. So... The halachic will, I like to call it the halachic supplement. In other words, my assumption is that people are writing a will. They don't want the halachic default, which I just mentioned before. And they they also don't want the legal default. The legal default is also something people don't want. The legal default, for instance, allows only 50% to your spouse by default and 50% of the children, even
1: if your spouse is alive. Most You're people, speaking about the legal defaults here in Israel.
0: Yeah. And it's very similar in all Western countries. I mean, with nuances here and there, with slight differences, but it's the same concept. Mm-hmm. The legal default in most Western countries is that um, if a person dies without a will at all, which we call legally intestate, the estate is divided by default between the spouse and the children. Okay. So let's say okay. if you and your wife own a, a house and each of you owns 50% of the house and you don't write a will at all. So the legal default would say that if uh, you go first, well, statistics are against us, the man. Um, so your wife would own 75% of the house because she got 50% of your share. She would have three quarters of the house and 25% would be divided between your all your children, which would be very impractical because if you'd want to sell the house, each child owns like 5% or 8% and uh, the slightest issues come up and it's a whole big, uh, problem. So therefore, it's important to write a will in general. Now, so assuming people write a legal will, so they don't want the legal default. They also don't want the Allah default. 99% of the people I met, we're talking about hundreds of people, want everything to go to the spouse, usually. And if their spouse is not around, means that their spouse got to 120 before them, so then mm-hmm. they want to split equally between the children. Okay, with, you know, adjustments here and there, or sometimes there are weddings or things. But that's, that's the what,
1: general default most people want.
0: Right. So the real issue we have here, and here's where the halachic supplement to the will comes in, is that assuming you wrote a legal will, the problem is your legal will is not valid from a halakhic perspective. It means the way halacha looks at it, halacha says, well, I don't care that you wrote a will. It's not valid anyway. So halakhically, really, the halachic default kicks in. And really, your firstborn son owns uh, a double share. Only your sons own the rest of the estate. Your wife doesn't really own anything, and your daughters don't own anything. That would be the halachic default, even if a person did write a legal will, and it doesn't didn't take care of the halachic side of things.
1: So just to understand, legally, the state will say one thing, and halacha says something else. You basically have a conflict between what halacha says, what Jewish law will require, and what the law of the country you're living in requires, right. and these will just go against each other. And I suppose, presumably, the law of the state will kick in unless the children decide to do differently.
0: Right, that's true. Halacha doesn't have authority in in any country. Also, in Israel, which is kind of an interesting paradox, you can probate a will in Israel in a Beit Din Rabani, um, an official one, not a private one, right. um, the regional Beit Din, uh, local Beit Din, and. Um, they're obligated to follow Israeli law, which is unbelievable. I
1: mean, Wait, a Din in Israel is obligated to follow Israeli law rather than... Jewish in inheritance
0: law? law, yeah. In family law, the Din has jurisdiction regarding uh, marriage, gitin, and all those areas. In Israel, as we know, there's no separation between um, uh, religion and state. So the Baitin did have full jurisdiction regarding religious issues of marriage. But regarding uh, inheritance law, the Israeli inheritance law it takes precedence. And if you can even if you come to probate your will in a Beitin Rabbani, the Beitin Rabbani has to follow Israeli law, which is a very interesting situation because halacha is not like that. And if a person doesn't have a halachic will,
1: it's a big balagan. So does that mean that if a person – I know we're sort of getting off topic, but this is fascinating to me. If a person wants to follow Torah law as it is without trying to make any amendments or adjustments based on a halachic will, the only way he can do that is to sign a halachic will that reverts it to Torah law effectively. In other words, if a person – let's say a person decides he only wants his sons to inherit him. Let's just say he wants to go right. and he wants his oldest son, his b'chor, to get a double portion. Right. If he wants to do that, it sounds like the only way that's possible is for him to sign a halachic will saying that now we're going to follow Torah law in this and basically – Arrange the halachic will, the halachic supplement, such that Torah law will be will be fulfilled as it's written down in Parshat Pinchas. Is that is that correct? Am I saying this well, correctly? Well, if he would
0: want, if he's looking for that result, he'd have to write a legal will. He'd have to go to the Israeli lawyer and get the lawyer to write a will that would say only my sons inherit and not my daughters, and okay. that would be valid in Israel and the Israeli courts,
1: or would would follow that. I understand. Okay. Let's get back to the practical right. the practical meaning of this. On a practical level, though, assuming most people want to divide their assets, their estate equally, or perhaps give it to the surviving spouse, and then if right. that spouse predeceases the other one, mm-hmm. and then follow that equally to all the children, practically speaking, what does the halakhic will do? Does it accomplish that successfully? It does. How do we do that? The main issue
0: with a, a legal will that doesn't have a halakhic supplement. The reason it isn't valid um, halachically, if you don't have a halachic supplement, is because it allocates things after one's demise. A regular legal will says that after I die, I allocate my assets to my wife, to my children, equally, or whoever, uh, gifts to grandchildren. And halacha doesn't recognize that because halacha says, well, it's very nice that you're requested that after 120, you want... Uh, your assets to go to certain people, but after 120, you're not a legal entity. You can't. Dead men
1: don't give presents.
0: Right. You can't stick your hand out of the grave and give things to people. It doesn't work that way. And therefore, you have, in order for a will to be halakhically valid, you have to make sure that the allocations kick in while you're still alive. Okay? And that is the, that is the main tool the halakhic supplement uses in order to validate your will. It basically um, validates the allocations while you're still alive, and that way it makes it a luckily valid.
1: In that case, Rob Kopperman, are you saying that a person, upon signing the halachic supplement or the supplement to the will, is giving away his property at that moment, or does it happen later on?
0: I'll answer you with a good Jewish answer. Yes and no. (laughs) Okay. Um, You're creating a, a system that kicks in right now, which will practically be implementable only after you go. How do we do that? You basically say, I'm giving a gift to the people written in my will, okay, let's say equally to my children, to my sons and daughters, or to my spouse, whichever way you phrase it. I'm giving a gift from today, provided I don't retract that gift until I get to 120. That means you you're basically giving the gift from today, but you allow yourself, you put in a conditional that you can change that allocation in any future point until you get to until you get to 120. That means only after you die will we know that you didn't change it, and then it retroactively kicks in. So, let's say you wrote your halachic supplement today, in 2021, and in 20 years' time, you decide to sell your house in Beit Shemesh and buy a house in Yerushalayim. So, By deciding to sell your house in Beit Chemish, you retracted that gift because you decided to do something else with it and not give it to your children. Okay. So therefore, when you get 120, the gift doesn't apply to that specific asset. But the assets that you own today and will still be owning when you get 120, retroactively, the gift kicks in from the time you signed your Allahic supplement.
1: Does that mean then that whenever somebody makes any transaction that affects his estate, he has to go and change his will? because all of a sudden that original gift is no longer valid or is that somehow included in the mechanism of the supplement to the will it's it's
0: included you don't need to you don't need to change it because basically it'll it, the gift uh, again applies to all the assets you own today provided you didn't do any other transaction with them until age 120. so if you did transactions okay so they're not included they're just out you don't own them anymore and they're not yours so the Allah supplement won't won't refer to them and but what
1: if it. I buy a new house or, or ah, something like that where all ah. of a sudden I, I win the lottery and I become I get 10 right. million dollars now what do right. I do so
0: so for that we have the second tool the solution of, of defining your allocations as a gift is only good for assets you own today regarding assets you acquire in the future we have a halacha concept which says Ein you can't give a gift of something you don't own yet or something that doesn't even exist. Um, And for that matter, anything you don't own from your perspective is it doesn't exist because it's not yours. Mm -hmm. You can't do transactions and things you don't have. And that is a difference from the legal um, aspect of things, because legally you can say anything I'm going to own at age, whatever, you know, that's allocated. But how you can't do that. So the way to overcome, to make sure your will is valid also for these future assets, we have a concept called ashtar chatzizachar, which you need a bit of a cup to get it. But uh, I know you have, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have. Um, basically, the way we do it is um, we create a large debt to the non-halachic beneficiaries, which is nullified if your legal will is followed as written. And I'll explain. Okay, please. Let's say you have two sons and two daughters, just for argument's sake, And you want to make sure that your assets, also your future assets, are going to be divided 25% each between your four children. So what do you do? So you write a debt of $10 million to your daughters. And you write that debt and said, I admit that I owe my daughters $10 million. But I put in a condition that if my will is followed as written and everybody's going to get an equal share, the debt is nullified.
1: It's almost a penalty payment to the, the sons should they insist on following the halakha as it's written in the Torah. Exactly.
0: Correct? Exactly. So that way... Here, here, the way we accomplish the halachic uh, uh, goal we want is that although someone, one can't give a gift of something he doesn't own, you can create a debt which will create a lien on future assets. So the debt you created today... That you
1: can do even if you don't own
0: something. Right. If you take a loan today, any asset you buy in the future is subject to paying off that loan. So, for, for instance... So,
1: and in this case, it's not a loan, but he makes himself it, right. obligated to pay money.
0: Right. So so therefore, what, what happens is so after you get to 120, if your kids sit down together and they see your will, and they say, well, Abba asked us all to divide everything equally. We're all good with that and everything. Okay, great. So everything's divided equally and there's no debt to anyone. But if Chas and shalom, and these are cases, unfortunately, I've seen, uh, they're a bit extreme, but I've seen not one and not two. Um, and the sons, uh, for whatever reason, they think it's right. They say, "Well, you know, hey sis, you got a lot of money for your wedding. You, uh, your your husband's doing real well. You don't need the money. Blah blah, whatever uh, uh, justification they come up with, uh, the idea that
1: Rabo oh, Machshavo
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Right. So, so in that case, if there were, if they would Chasu like go to a rav or something and try to challenge the will and say that they're they're the uh, halachic heirs, and therefore they deserve the whole estate, any diem that would look a half a second at the halachic supplement would say to them, hey, chevre, you know, it's true that you're the halachic heirs by default, but, you know, the estate owes your sisters $10 million. First, first, pay your sisters $10 million, and then you can take all the rest, which would leave them with absolutely nothing, unless, unless you uh, made an exit of $100 million. But then, in that case, you want to write a debt of $100 million I mean, the debt to your non-halachic heirs, okay, or beneficiaries, um, mm-hmm. should be uh, around the sum of your estate.
1: Now, that just leads to another side question. In this case, what if somebody has additional children? In that case, do they need to write a new supplement to the will? Yeah,
0: in that case, they would have to write a new supplement to the will um, because although... There's no way we can uh, obligate ourselves towards someone who doesn't exist. It's impossible halakhically. So, you know, for young, uh, for young couples who sometimes would write a will, I say to them, look, if you have another son, so you don't need a new halakhic supplement because he's halakhic heir anyway. You do know I mean? But if you have another daughter, you may want to uh, change it. So usually, you know, people, if young couples write wills, so usually if you know, when when you're 40 or 45 or whatever it is, and you know what your family is look looking like so um that's the time you may want to uh revise uh your supplement in any case uh i think lawyers recommend generally you should review your will once in five ten years just review it see if it's still relevant I have sometimes people come to me with their american wills like 30 page long american wills i just tell them do me a favor go to your israeli lawyer you count with a page <laughs> and a half or two pages short <laughs> concise israeli will and <laughs>
1: It's actually it raises an interesting point. At what point would you recommend somebody actually write a halakhic will for the first time? Obviously, a lot of couples are probably very uncomfortable, particularly when they're young. Maybe they're more uncomfortable when they're older, I don't know. But the idea of writing a will, or a newly married couple with two children, that might sound, let's not use the word ayin hara or something like that. Nevertheless, obviously, it can make people feel creeped out to use the, uh, to use the conventional legal language. What would you tell them about that? When should they start thinking about it? And how would you make them feel more comfortable with the idea?
0: Right. So generally, I mean, there's no correct answer for, for this question. I find there's a very big mentality difference between Israelis and uh, Americans, like, you know, a 35 year old American with a few children who doesn't have a will. Like people say, are you crazy if something happens to you? What's going to be with your children? Blah, blah. You know, I give some these lectures to Israeli uh, retired people, you know, and Kolel's, uh and you know, the person comes to me and says, you know, what do you talk about, Wills? I'm 85 and healthy. What do you want to kill me? You know, <laughs> it's uh <Baruch> Hashem, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the famous Israeli saying, I mean, but if if we if I really need to answer the question, I would say that generally, I think when a person's in his 40s, is he knows what his family looks like. I think that's that's time to start thinking about having something there in place for Korsa shelotavo. I would recommend um for younger couples. If there's an issue regarding what would to be done with the children, if chaseshaum something happened to the parents, let's say there's young couples who make aliyah, and let's say the husband's parents are living in Israel, and the wife's parents are living in chutzlar. And if something were to happen to them, there could be chaseshaum like what to do with the children, to send them back, or to keep them here, or what type of chinuch, or sometimes, you know, this b'tshuva, or there's a bit of differences. There, there could be things that... Could be ambiguous regarding what the parents would have wanted for their children. So, if there's something that's straight out there, could be a red light. So I would say, you know, you may want to write something. Doesn't have to be even an official will, but please write something that people know this has that were to happen. This is what you want, because when people don't want write what they do want, people start guessing what they would have wanted,
1: and that's not good. (laughs) That's the root of machloket. I'm sure very very often. That's the last thing you want. Have you found ever that having a supplement to the will has caused machlok, it has caused argument among family members, or do you find that it generally is a way of avoiding them? Presumably, it would be something which some would want, specifically the daughters, but obviously, as you mentioned, sometimes it can cause problems if the sons say, hey, look, first of all, the Torah said that I'm entitled to this, and second of all, you know, you made a lot of money, your husband's doing great, your in-laws are very, very wealthy, mine are not, so why should you get a portion that I don't get? So does it often cause fights or does it usually avoid them? What's your experience? Um,
0: from my experience, I've never encountered even one case where a halakhic supplement actually caused machlokis. Usually the parents who write the will, they create the supplement at the time, and at the end of the day, the supplement is, the halakhic supplement is actually validating the will itself. So if the will makes sense, so the supplement just validates what's written in the will. So sometimes what will happen is sometimes people send me their legal will and they say, okay, I want a supplement, a lachic supplement for this will. And I look at the will and I see from my experience that there, there are some allocations there which may cause tension in the family, regardless of a lachik. Sometimes say they'll give a very small amount to one child and then a very large amount to a different child. And I'll say to them, you know, you may want to revisit this because your children may not understand what's the logic behind this and uh, it may cause bachok in the family so you may want to revisit that, or at least if there's a very good reason for doing that, explain it in the will why you're doing it, so that your family in the understands will it. Um, you, you say, well, you know, this is a special needs child who who will need support all his life, and therefore I'm setting up a trust or giving a large amount of money to support him till age, you know, till later age, versus uh, my other children who are married and well to do, you know, need less, um, That's right. financial needs. So. Those are situations which I usually advise people to revisit their will, but but it's nothing to do with the lack supplement. The alachic supplement at the end is a technical um, document that just makes sure that your legal will is valid. And since the Torah default, nobody writes a will with the Torah default. So therefore, the supplement is not changing anything really.
1: You just said something which I really want to ask you about. And it's it's sort of a hushkafic question. You said that nobody writes their will to be in accordance with the Torah default. And I want to ask you about why that is. I understand emotionally why that is, but I want to know how you can explain it, why we shouldn't go according to the Torah default on a philosophical level. Uh, Let me give it an example. When the law of Shemitah, which says that at the end of the seventh year, debts are eliminated, came up against the also Torah law that you must lend to people, people weren't loaning money because they knew they would lose the money, Chazal instituted the concept of pruzbul, which allows both halachot to exist through a loophole. Or similarly, or not quite similarly, in a parallel situation, the idea of rebeat interest is prohibited by the Torah. But on the other hand, that was presumably much more reasonable in an agrarian economy when everyone's a farmer. When you have a modern economy, it can't work. Chazal instituted the idea of a heteriska which doesn't quite allow rebeat, but it allows modern people to have some sort of payment for money without violating the halacha. What's the excuse, so to speak, for us to go against what the Torah recommends as its presumed ideal? I know the Torah does allow a will to happen. This is not violating halakha. The question is, hashkafically, on a philosophical level, why do we want to do that? Why not say, well, I might not understand it, but the Torah told me that's how it should be. That must be the best way to do it. That's a great question. And there are a few answers, long generation trying to be given to this question.
0: It's very interesting uh, in uh, Rev Herzog's uh, Sefer Chukal Yisrael al Pia Torah, which is basically uh, a draft of his suggestion for a Jewish constitution for the new Jewish state, um, which he uh, put forward in the 50s. He quotes the famous uh, author Shai Agnon, telling the story about this Admor in the 19th century or 18th century, who wrote a will, which was exactly the Torah default. And mm-hmm. the result was, azalav medina. he was the joke of the whole county, because it was so rare that someone would do something like that, it was so unheard of, that that Rebbe was practically looked weird because of what he had done. So this is a custom ready for hundreds of years to write wills that are don't follow uh, the Torah default. But to answer your question, I, I would say that the reason, the excuse, as you say, I uh, connect to the most is really connects to the context of the laws of inheritance of the Torah. We're actually going to, we're now uh, recording this uh, before Parashat Balak, but next week we're going to read uh, Parashat Pinchas, And the context of the laws of inheritance, Torah laws of inheritance, is in dividing the land between the different tribes and B'not the daughters of Tzlofchad who had no sons, they come to Moshe Ben and they say, We want to inherit too. And what is their excuse? Uh, what is their re- argument in demanding inheritance? They say, Lama shem avinu mitoch Why will our father's name be eliminated from our tribe? In other words, in olden days, The inheritance, which is mainly the real estate, was actually the legacy of the family. And that's why I went over to the sons, because the sons continued the legacy. Till today, in most families, the sons are those who can keep the family name by default, and the family stays with the sons. And the daughters married into different families. So when inheritance is not only getting money or getting a house that you're going to sell in a few, within a few months or years. Mm-hmm. It's really legacy. Then it makes sense that it should go down to those who are continuing the legacy of the family. If, just to give an example from Tanakh, when Achav, yeah. the king, comes to Navot Israeli, you ever been to Tel Israel, to Achav's winter home, which is in the Bika, because the Shomron gets pretty cold in the winter, and he would go to Tel Israel in, uh, in the winter to have a bit of warmth there in the Bika. And... He, he tells Navot, you know, give me your vineyard. What does Navot answer him? He says, nachalat lach. you know, Av offers him a big, great offer. He's going to give you a better one and give you much more. You know, it'll be worth your while. You know, when the king tells you that, you know, he, he's, he's talking serious. And Navot won't do it because to keep that vineyard is to keep your family's legacy. And to give that up is really to say, okay, I don't care about my family. And so nowadays, when inheritance basically is only receiving money and your house is only an asset where you're going to you know, move to a bigger one or sell it when it's not convenient. So it's not really fulfilling the same idea was in the time of Torah. Maybe one day when we live in a tribal way, maybe it'll go back. But nowadays, it's only a financial. And financially, there's no reason to differentiate between children who have the same needs daughters and sons, and uh, and especially when, when the will expresses your love towards your children and your kesher with them. So therefore, there's no reason to keep it with the sons or to keep it by the husband and not by the wife. It's that, that it certainly doesn't
1: mean anything anymore.
0: Right now. It may mean in the future again, if we get that to and uh, Yeah.
1: Right. Also, just to further what you're saying, when there's yovel, that even further makes that idea stronger that even if you sell it, you get it back, it, it stays right. in the family in perpetuity. So that right. really uh, emphasizes what you're saying. Just before we go, do you have any interesting stories, anything you can tell that would just to highlight some of the ideas you've been talking about today about the importance of the supplement to the will?
0: <laughs> wow, <laughs> lots of them. <laughs> I'll tell you, <laughs> I gave I gave a sheer on this topic, um, I think about, about four years ago. It was in England, uh, just this time of year in June, Mincha Meyer, Shabbos afternoon, 5 to 10 to 10.30 at night, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, the Rav of the show.
1: was... The longest Shivala time was I ever spent was in London in July. <laughs> <laughs> <years> exactly. <ago>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it never ended. <laughs> exactly.
0: So, um, so the Rav of the show was kind enough to give me a lift back to where I was staying after, after Meyer about a quarter to 11 at night. And after I gave a share on this topic, says to me, look, I'll tell you a story. There was a woman in my Shul called me a few weeks ago. And she told me that her brother called her. And he said to her, look, you know, our parents passed away not long ago. We divided the estate equally, you know, as they questioned the will. But, you know, you know, sis, um, according to Allah, really, uh, I'm there. And what you took is really gezel. And uh, you know, look, I'm not going to sue you did in Torah, but you, you should just know that uh what you took is, is really mine, you know. And on uh, your conscience. And, uh, Good night, sleep tight. So obviously she didn't. And she called the Rav. <laughs> she had to consult with someone. And this is just a small example of you know tension. And unfortunately, I've come across even worse things like that. That that actually brothers who sued their sisters to dim Torah to get the estate. And if the parents have just realized that this could happen in their family, I'm sure they would have immediately written a halachic supplement, which would have preempted this problem. And um, it's so simple. You just have a simple halakhic supplement, which just makes sure your will is valid and no one can challenge your will on a halakhic basis. And, you know, we invest 90% of our lives in family and parnasa. And it's just doing the minimal thing to make sure that our family sits around the Seder table together after we're not around also. And that money shouldn't get in the way. Just set them up properly without having them any reason for machlokas. That's just something we want to think about.
1: Well, of Copperman, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, my wife and I utilized your services both in setting up a halachic supplement to a will and in preparing the will in the first place. I can tell you that it wasn't something which I was eager to do, frankly, but good friends of ours who actually are members of your shul, Sarah and Dave Wolf, convinced us that we really have to do it. Dave was saying to me, what are you doing? Why are you not doing this? And he was absolutely right. And having done so, I can attest that working with it and doing it was painless, as painless as can be. And more than that, I can say that when we were done, it actually felt really good. I felt that... We had done something very important, something which was necessary, something which, as best as we possibly can, we're doing in order to prevent any future arguments, any future discomfort that some might have. So it really was a positive experience. Given that, I want to ask you, if people listening want to contact you to find out how they can create their own wills and their own halakhic supplements, how do they best reach you?
0: So uh, the best thing would be to send me an email um, at info at kadadvaqadim.com. I have a website, which is in building. I um, mean, it has the information there. So Kadatvikadin.com, you can go in um, and uh, it's still being built, but uh, it has all the information there or give me a call and I'll be happy to assist and advise you on the best way to go around your estate planning from a lucky perspective.
1: Okay, and I'll put that information also in the show notes as well in the description of the podcast. Rabbi Nachum Kopperman, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Remember to go to jewishcoffeehouse.com for lots of great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. You can also find my blog, The Scott Conversation, there. Please also share this podcast so we can get the word out about the Orthodox conundrum to an even bigger audience. And please consider becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron by going to our Patreon page. The link is in the description of this podcast you can get extra episodes, articles, merch, and more while also supporting our work. So please check it out today. I'm Scott Kahn, and this has been The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com.